For those of you who are sticking around, turn in your Bible. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn our to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. So here we are. I think we're like 36 days or so into Easter, the Easter season. And throughout the Easter season, we've been rejoicing, thinking about, remembering, learning more about the resurrection, what it is and what it means. So I just want to remind you that the resurrection only means what it means if it's related to the crucifixion. So look at it this way. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, something changed in the world. It wasn't that just on the cross we see this amazing demonstration of sacrificial love. But the cross made a difference. Something happened. So that by 6 o'clock in the evening on that first Good Friday, the world was different than it was on Thursday. In Jesus' crucifixion, the God who created this world drew evil to a point and then dealt with it. He did something to evil that had not been done prior to the cross. Now, just a couple of chapters before our gospel reading. So our gospel reading is Luke chapter 24, this passage where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is doing some things and saying some things that we'll, we'll look at. But just a few chapters before that, in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, Jesus was getting his closest followers ready for the crucifixion and for the resurrection. And what he told them was that on the cross, evil was going to be let loose in a way it's never been let loose before. That evil was not going to be restrained. It was going to be unrestrained. And it was going to be free to do its worst. And so when you look at the crucifixion, and you look at these brutal soldiers and the self-serving politicians and the corrupted courts and the betraying friend and the mocking bystanders. All of that is terrible. And if you've ever gone through a corrupt court system or ever been betrayed by somebody who was all the way into your heart. If you've ever expelled, experienced mockery, those things are terrible. But what we see is that on the cross, behind them, there was a dark evil at work doing its worst. And so that on the cross, the darkest and the strongest power of all, the power of death itself, this ultimate denial of the goodness of creation, it was, it was reigning and it was doing its worst. And so when you look at the cross and you see the tortured body of Jesus hung on a cross, that was the point where evil became fully and totally itself. So that on the cross, what is happening is the creator, the God who created, is taking responsibility for what's happened to his creation. He's bearing the weight of all the problems. He's bearing the weight of it all on his own shoulders. And on the cross, God wins the victory over the power of evil. And he does this out of love. Love for this world, love for you, love for me. He died as the world's representative. He died for me, 
He died for you. And the cross is the place where God's love goes to the uttermost. And out of his love, he died on our behalf. And in doing this, in some mysterious way, it broke the power of sin. And it broke the power of evil. And it broke the power of death itself. And so that happened on Friday. And nobody knows that that's what happened. Everybody thinks at the moment that what happened was a terrible ending to a story that some people had put their hope in. But three days later, the first sign occurred that the world was different. And what was the sign that the world had actually changed on Friday? The first sign of the difference was Jesus' resurrection. Now, some people might say, but... What about others who Jesus raised from the dead? How is this the sign of new creation when Lazarus was raised from the dead? But the big difference is this. Jesus' resurrected body was different than Lazarus' resurrected body. Lazarus died again. His body was still, even though he'd been raised from the dead, his body was still subject to the laws of science, to the laws of decay, the, law, the fact that stuff just doesn't last forever. But Jesus' body is this different body. It's this first time ever a new material reality. Here we've got a body that's physical and does not decay. And it's this weird body that shows up out of nowhere, it's just, but can eat. How can a body eat? How can a body be touched and yet not be bound by decay? That's the new creation. That's what's so mind-boggling. And so what happened is God defeated death. And the first sign of the new creation was the physical resurrected body of Jesus. That in that moment... The darkest and strongest power in the world, the power of death, had been defeated. And the first sign of that is the resurrected body of Jesus. And so what we see when we look at Jesus' resurrection is we see this is the new creation. This is the new world that's broken in to this old, tired world. Now that's the gospel. That's the news that Christians and non-Christians struggle to believe. Because it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that God broke the power of death. That he broke the power of evil. That he broke the power of sin. Now we believe that as Christians quite easily when we think that sin is forgiven. But in the same miraculous way that sins are forgiven because of the cross, creation is healed because of the cross. But we've been seduced into narrowing the gospel down just into this kind of soul transaction that on the cross your sins get to be forgiven. Wow. But that's pretty strange too. How does somebody dying 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me being selfish and mean to my children? But in the same mysterious way that the power of sin was broken and forgiveness of sin was offered, in the same way the power of decay and death was broken. And in Jesus, we see this, the first fruits of the new creation. Now, in our gospel reading this morning, what's happening is that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is calling his followers to be filled with the Spirit 
and to go into the world as witnesses to the new creation. Witnesses to this fact that the creator who made the world has broken the power that infected the world. And that power is in sin, and that power is in death, and that power is in decay. It's in all of those things. And and those who follow him, they're given the gifts of the new creation. Their sins are forgiven. We see diseases healed. We see relationships healed. We see these places where the new creation is breaking into our lives. And hear what's going on in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, is that the resurrection of Jesus... And the gift of the Spirit mean that we have a job to do. And our job is to bear witness. But again, the key is what are we bearing witness to? We are bearing witness to the whole gospel. The whole amazing fact of new creation. Now, Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 49. Here we see the church is called to bear witness to implement the victory of God in the world today. There are three ways in particular that I want to show you we bear witness. We bear witness through works of justice. We bear witness through works of beauty. And we bear witness through works of evangelism. All three of these are packed into Jesus' statement when he says, you are to be my witnesses. Let's start with justice. Remember, we are bearing witness to the new creation. And over and over and over, whenever the Bible talks about the new creation and the work of God in the world, over and over and over, it identifies the quality of justice. You can't get away from it. Isaiah chapter 11, our Old Testament reading. This is just one example when, when, the God, when the Bible writers are describing what the new creation will be like and what Jesus will do, they talk about justice. He will bring justice. This is why when a little bitty kid has a toy taken away from them, they cry out with every ounce of their being, that's not fair. Deep inside of them is a sense that a lack of fairness should not go unnamed. (laughs) And we should never outgrow that. And the only people who get to live as if justice is not at the heart of the new creation are bougie middle class white folks who haven't experienced injustice. But if you grow up with decades and decades and decades of injustice then you know the heart cry for justice. That's why we have passages like Psalm 72, where we are taught to pray these words. Give the king your justice, O God. And I just want to say to you, the only people who don't cry out for God to do that are either people who've never really experienced injustice because they're lucky, or people who are so broken down they no longer can cry out. But this is the cry of the broken world. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May all kings fall down before this king. Which king? The one who brings justice. The one who rescues the poor and the needy. 
He delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. This is all over the Bible. Whenever the Bible reflects on what God is going to do to this world, justice is there right at the heart of it. So when we're bearing witness to the new kingdom, to the new creation, to God's will being done on earth as in heaven, we have to be talking about justice because the Bible can't talk about it without talking about justice. So when you read in Luke 24 to be a witness, what are you a witness to? You're a witness to the new creation. We cannot get off the hook by declaring that the world is currently in such a mess, there's nothing to be done about it until he returns. And we cannot get off the hook by thinking that we'll try to practice justice and mercy in our private lives and let the rest of the world do its own thing. We have to be ready in season and out of season to speak up for the needs of the poor. Now, this is why our church has entered into a deep partnership with the Arabic-speaking refugees from Sudan. So I think that mission is fundamentally a stewardship of relationships. Who has God brought into your life that's suffering? Who is my neighbor, right? And so who, who has God brought into our life as a church who is profoundly vulnerable and has suffered deep injustices? The Arabic-speaking people among us who are from the Nuba Mountains. 30 years of war. The author of the Darfur genocide moved to the Nuba Mountains and effected a genocide there. And in God's providence, one of the key leaders of that community who was put on a blacklist, he and his family were, were assaulted by the government and tried, they tried to murder them. They landed here at our church. We didn't, it just happened. Bishop Andudu. And as a result, we have among us this people group who have suffered these incredible injustices. So we've done two things as a church to put our money with our mouth, where our mouth is. To, we've done two things as a church to say, as we bear witness, we have to attend to justice. One of those things is we've started an Arabic-speaking congregation that meets in our building on Sunday nights at 6.30. The reason it's Sunday night at 6.30 is because they're refugees and they're day laborers and they're working right now. And so they can't worship in the morning and they don't speak English, so we couldn't, it, this would not work for them. So Pastor Emmanuel is right here. He's their pastor. He's recently moved here from Egypt, and they meet in this room on Sunday nights at 630. Now their children, their teenagers speak English, so they're fully integrated into our youth group, into our children's ministry. The second thing we've done is that we've helped start and partnered with Pax Day for Nuba, an organization who's Vision is not just to help the Arabic-speaking refugees that are here, but to partner with them to rebuild the community and the civilization in the Nuba Mountains. So the vision of Pax Day for Nuba is to support the restoration of a thriving society in the Nuba Mountains. Our people in our church have given well over $100,000 to this. It's attracted major investments from other organizations in the world, and we're getting to see this happen. Why? Why does this matter? Out of a thousand things our church could do, we really have only started two extra things. Our arts ministry and Pax Day for Nuba in the Arabic-speaking congregation. Why? Because justice is at the heart of the gospel. And bearing witness, it says in 2 Corinthians, we, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
We are a piece of new creation. Our job is to go out into the world and be agents of new creation. And one of the ways we do that is by acts of justice. The second way that we do that, like I said, is through art, beauty. Uh, This is, look, in the Bible, beauty is as important to the new creation as justice is. And the reason that we sometimes don't know that is we've screened out this issue of beauty from the Bible in our search for dogma. We've got these ways of reading the Bible that looks for doctrinal dogma, and it screams out the beauty. But beauty is right there in God's creation and God's new creation from the first page. In fact, the way the Bible tells the story of the creation of the world is more beautiful than it is scientific. It's seven perfectly balanced, poetic days of description. In fact, a a closer analogy to Genesis 1 and 2 and the way it's functioning and describing the creation of the world is if you went to Chris Rooker's house for an amazing seven-course meal. Have you guys ever been at one of these meals where a, a serious professional chef is coming out with each course and he's talking about, you know, I, I, I made this, I got this vegetable here and I made this there and he's describing it and, you know, he says, this is really good. And then he brings out another course and he describes it, this is really good. That's Genesis 1. God makes these things and then it's described poetically. This is really good. Six times, and then on the seventh time, the master chef looks at what he's made and says, this is really, this is very good. It's beautiful. What is the goodness that God pronounces? What is God saying when he looks at his creation and says this is good? Is he talking about a moral quality? No, he's not. It's closer to what a mother and father say as they're looking at a child that's just been born. And they say, wow. This is good. This is amazing. This is beautiful. There is nothing that God does that doesn't send off sparks of beauty that call attention to his beauty. All beauty is an echo of the glory of God. And just like little children have this primal, atavistic kind of urge in them to call out lack of fairness... You have a primal urge in you for beauty too. It's in your decorating at home. It's in your gardening. It's Charlie Jackson and his love affair with uh, tennis shoes. If you guys know about Charlie and his commitment to the beauty of tennis shoes, which Ed doesn't see necessarily, but he sees the beauty of an early morning fishing experience in the Shenandoah Valley. It's in us. It's in all of us. We see it. It's right there in Scripture. In the second book of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses and the elders of Israel are ascending a mountain in order to meet with God, in this remarkable moment, we're told this. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, not linoleum. (laughs) See, you know what I mean, right? (laughs) Look, you can't find God's presence anywhere in the Bible without some gratuitous description of the beauty. In fact, when God commanded Israel a couple of chapters later in chapter 31 to build a tabernacle, a place for them to meet him, for the first time in the Bible, we're told somebody is filled with the Spirit. The very first time in the Bible somebody is described as filled with the Spirit 
It's Oholiab and Bezalel. And they are filled with the Spirit and they are artists. And they're filled with the Spirit for the making of art. That's the first filling of the Spirit is an artist to make beautiful things out of really expensive material. Why? Because it wouldn't make sense for God to be worshipped in some like unbeautiful way or place. A little over 100 years ago, a pastor in upstate New York wrote a great hymn, a piece of beautiful art. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've had to sing my way into believing that. There are some times in life where art just has bigger muscles than propositions. Art is this thing that doesn't need any justification. It's right in the heart of God. You can't separate out beauty from the new creation any more than you could separate justice out from the new creation. And so when we are commanded to be witnesses of the new creation, our job is to look at all of these amazing descriptions of the new creation in the Bible and then move into our world and find all of the places where they lack and plant them there. As signs of the new creation. This is a reason that the other major initiative of our church. Look, our church, we worship and we disciple. That's where we put our money, right? Into this building, our youth ministry, our children's ministry, our small groups. But the two extra things we've done is a major initiative for justice. Potsday for Nuba, our support of the Arabic-speaking congregation, and Arts Incarnate. And that's not just because art is some pretty decoration around the edges. It's because this is what it means to be agents of new creation. And this is what it means for you to be an agent of new creation. As you move out into your life, into your job, into your neighborhood, you find the ugly places and the unjust places and you go to work. You cannot find God's kingdom without finding beauty. And ugliness is from hell. Go to Eastern Europe and see what the atheistic Soviet state produced in architecture. It's brutal. When my wife and I were in seminaries, graduate school for pastors, we lived in New Orleans and we worked with the Desire Street Housing Project. And it was just as brutal as Soviet-era architecture. It was acre after acre after acre of the same concrete box that we shoved the poorest of the poor in and you would lose your moral center too if you lived in such a treeless ugly place God who cannot bring himself to paint two sunrises the same on any given day that is the opposite of what we do with housing for the poor and we're naive to think it won't break them See, because justice and beauty are both there. And so the third way that we bear witness to God and his kingdom, and the third way we live out, Luke 24, 44 to 49, where we draw down on the power of the Spirit and we move out and we witness, is evangelism. I think that there's a people in this room that the first two, justice and beauty, are way more palatable than evangelism. We live in a moment... Where evangelism, the word itself, sends shivers through the souls 
of so many people. We're afraid of it. But just remember, evangelism, all it is, is announcing the gospel. Telling it. And what is the gospel? It's simple. It's this. God is God. Jesus is Lord. The powers of evil have been defeated. God's new world has begun. That's the gospel. Announce it. Tell this to people. And and it's so interesting. One of the best evangelists in our church is a woman named Carolyn Miller. She was in the first service. And I'm... My wife and I are very fortunate. We get to be in a small group with the Millers. And we were talking about this passage on Wednesday night. And we were all talking about the things that keep us from announcing the gospel. And Carolyn, who I was shocked she said this because she's fearless. And she's incredible at this. She said every time she goes to share the gospel, this wall comes up of fear. And sometimes it's, I'm afraid they might, I might not know how to answer their questions. Or I'm afraid they might reject me. Or I'm afraid they might feel like, hey, you're getting a little too private into my life. Keep your religion. Like, right? There's all these things that keep us back from actually announcing the gospel. We'd rather talk about church. We'd rather talk about art. We'd rather talk about justice. But when it comes to actually saying, God is God, Jesus is Lord, on the cross, the power of evil was broken, and everybody's invited into his kingdom. When it comes to actually naming that, this wall grows up in front of us. Why? Because even though sin and evil and death and decay have been broken, they are still wildly striking out. And every bit as much, Aaron Cook, who's a criminal defense lawyer in our church, every bit as much as he knows that when he goes to work for justice, he's going to get his teeth kicked in. He knows it's a slog. He knows it's hard. We need to just anticipate, if we are going to announce the gospel We're going to get pushback. It's going to come internally. All of hell itself is going to rise up and try to convince you it's not worth it. You can't do it. It's not according to the rules. You can talk about everything else, but you can't talk about this at your job. You can't talk about this with your friends. But we can't, just as much as we're not let off the hook on justice and we're not let off the hook on beauty, we are not let off the hook on evangelism because we have to name the gospel. And it's okay that you're not going to be able to answer every question. And it's okay. Think about that. What if you said, I'm not going to fight for justice until I know exactly how it's going to work out and exactly what it needs to look like and exactly how to be successful? No. You just go for it. We are to bear witness. And we have to bear witness in all three of these ways. The gospel is the announcement that God is God, Jesus is Lord, and that on the cross the power of evil has been broken, and there's forgiveness of sin, and there's freedom, and there are a thousand different ways to say this. And once this is said, once you announce it, once you say it, not you argue it, but just say it. Once you do, everybody is gladly invited in to join the party, to discover forgiveness of sin, to discover an astonishing future. And in a compelling vocation. And all that it requires to join the new creation with this banner of love over the doorway. All that's required is that people turn from idols and turn to Jesus. Look, these three go together. These three form the core of witness. There's a thousand other things to witnessing, but these three are at the core. Evangelism needs to be flanked by new creation work 
in the realms of justice and in the realms of beauty. Because if we're talking about victory over evil and the launch of the new creation, it won't make much sense unless we're working for those things in the very lives of the poorest of the poor. And if we're talking about Jesus winning the victory over the dark powers and starting the long-awaited new creation, it will be much easier for people to believe if we are working to show them this. Art, over the last several decades, has devolved into brutalism in the guise of realism. We need to be a church that can nurture artists so that they can help us believe the unbelievable. So that we can sing ourselves into believing something that our long shrunken imaginations won't let us believe. It's love that believes the resurrection. That's Ludwig, that's Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of my favorite philosophers. It's love that believes the resurrection, not reason, not reasonableness. Hearts can be wooed by glorious music and art and dance and drama into believing for a moment that a different world than the world we see is possible. Incarnation. We are new creation people. Let's keep doing it. Those places where you're working for justice and you're working for beauty and you're announcing the gospel, you're living up to who God made you to be. Hang in there. Keep going. Let's pray.